You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport. Before we get into this week's podcast, did you know that I have a theater with my name on it? Okay, it's not really my name. It's named after my great-grandfather, Delbert Essex Davenport. He was this crazy Ziegfeld-like wannabe from way back in the day. He was a publicist, he was a producer, he was a lyricist. You name it, he did it. He wore a lot of hats. Sound familiar? It's like this guy. Anyway, I named my theater after him, and guess what? That theater is available for rent. We do workshops, readings, full productions. We have a 60-seat black box and a 150-seat main stage. So check it out at DavenportTheater.com. That's DavenportTheater.com. We'd love to host your show. Now, on to the podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, KenDavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. You know, one of the things that really bugs me about Broadway, one of the many things, is that too often people think of certain professions as being on the other side or the enemy. Dun, dun, dun. And for producers, some of my peers would refer to some of those enemies as agents. Dun, dun, dun. Again. But the fact is we're all in this crazy business for the same reason. We love the theater and we want it to prosper. Contrary to popular belief, no one got into this business to get rich. Nobody. In fact, some people might say that people get in it to get poor. And my guest today is one of the best examples the industry has of someone on that other side, but who truly represents the best of we're all in this together spirit. And he is talent and literary agent Jack Tantliff. Welcome, Jack. Thank you, Ken. Jack is the head of the theatrical literary department at the powerhouse agency Paradigm, some clients include Glenn Slater, David Yazbak, Oscar winner Alfred Urey, Stephen King, never heard of him, and Sarah Bareilles, about to become a Broadway composer with the debut of Waitress. And another client that Paradigm represents is this little-known guy named Ken Davenport. Jack was instrumental in putting together the critically acclaimed Broadway production of Sideshow, which was the subject of this incredible article in the New York Times, which we'll include in the blog about this podcast. And he even has a couple of producing credits on his resume. So, Jack, when you were a little boy and people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say, I want to be an agent? I said, I want to be a doctor. A doctor? Yes, I did. So how did your mother must be so disappointed in you? She was disappointed until the New York Times article. (laughs) So how did it happen? What was the path from doctor to agent? (laughs) Well, I went to Colby College in Waterville, Maine to become a doctor. 
and I got involved in their extracurricular theater program. There was no four-credit theater there. And the honest-to-God truth is I wasn't doing very well in my pre-med courses. I was having a lot of fun in the theater program, and then two things happened. Over spring break, I saw the original Broadway production of Equus, and while I neither wanted to act nor blind horses, I somehow identified with that boy on the stage. When I got back from spring break, uh, one of the professors at Colby had invited his old friend, I don't know how they knew each other, Ellen Stewart, who of course was the creative force founder and producer of La Mama. And she was up at Colby for uh, about two days and I trailed her around I was fascinated by everything that she had to say, and all of a sudden, at some point, out of my mouth, blurted, I want to go into theater, what should I do? And she said, go to Sarah Lawrence, it's the best school for theater in the country. I had never heard of Sarah Lawrence. I think it's the only theater school that she actually ever knew, because Wilford Leach, who became my faculty advisor was at the time the artistic director of La Mama. And that was the connection. But on that one sentence, I transferred. And that is how I made the transition. And did you, so you majored in theater at Sarah Lawrence and acting? To the or? extent that anybody at Sarah Lawrence majors in anything, yes. So uh, you were a performer? I so directed, well, Sarah Lawrence is not a trade school like Juilliard or... North Carolina School of the Arts or Carnegie Mellon. It was a really low-rent kind of theater program in spite of phenomenally talented teachers, people like Will Leach, Julie Bavasso, uh, Andre Sherban. I took a course from uh, him, uh, a great director named John Ferraro, other people like that. Um, but it was uh, a program where basically everybody did everything. So you uh, acted, you directed, you ran the follow spot, uh, all of that. And when you graduated, did you have a sense of what, which one of these disciplines you wanted to do as a career? Well, interestingly, because Sarah Lawrence was so, as I put it, low rent, I didn't really know what the career options in theater were. I didn't know about agents. I think that if you said to me, you know, what are the jobs available, I would say actor, director, producer. That's more or less what I understood. I kind of knew that I didn't want to to be an actor, although I did go on some auditions, just because uh, I've never been good with rejection. I think had you asked me at that point, what do you want to do, I probably would have said director, because I became sort of a you know, within the confines of the school, uh, a director of note. Um, my father knew someone who knew someone who knew a man named Peter Bobley. Peter Bobley uh, was a book publisher on Long Island, and he was the producing partner of a man named Michael Harvey. Um, that was my first job. I, I typed labels for Michael Harvey, who was producing two shows when I worked for him. One, which never happened, called Playboy on Broadway. Uh, it was, I don't know if I can say this, it was going to be a big tits and ass musical review to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the magazine. It, it, it was, you know, they, they went out to people like John Guare and Terrence McNally and Woody Allen, and they, they commissioned sketch material and song material from really... The very all the people you you could ever want, and it was all terrible. Um, and the show never happened. Although I I find it very interesting that not very long after was Sugar Babies, which in a lot of respects was sort of the same show except with no nudity. Um, the other show that Michael was producing was a pair of one act plays that he found at the Actors Theater of Louisville Humana Festival by James McClure called Lone Star and Private Wars. They were produced at the Century Theater in the Century Hotel. It does not exist anymore. It was down in the basement, but it was a Broadway-ish house. The entire show, and, and 
as, as a producer, Ken, you will think fondly of days like this, uh, cost $125,000. At the last minute, he lost some financing. And he said to me, the boy who was typing his labels, uh, do you want to try to raise money? And I said, sure. And I didn't know what to do. Uh, but I just called people and everybody I called said no. But interestingly, everybody who said no said, why don't you call this person? And most of those people said no too, but uh, eventually, and by now I was talking to complete strangers, you know, eventually people said yes. And I think I raised $25,000, which gave me an associate producer credit. Uh, my co-associate producer, uh, also his first show on Broadway, was Stuart Lane. <laughs> Mr. Broadway himself. Mr. Broadway himself also raised about $25,000, I think. So you go from typing labels to cold calling people, to, and you successfully raise money. And then why didn't you follow this? I want to be a producer now. You had such success. So many people I know can't raise a dime. Well... Nobody in the commercial theater world was, was standing with arms open. Um, but beyond that, it was only $25,000. And beyond that, I didn't really feel like I had produced anything. I, I was, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, always the office boy, just the office boy with the credit. Um, but what, what was great about that job was uh, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of the people who were in Michael Harvey's world. Um, two of them were, I mean, at the time, legendary. I don't know if they're even remembered anymore. General managers Jack Schlissel and Jay Kingwell. Um, Jack and Jay managed Sugar Babies, for one, Best Little Whorehouse, for another, Revival of She Loves Me. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, anyway, so I, I more or less asked Jack Schlissel to hire me, and he did. I worked as the assistant company manager of Bessel Whorehouse in, in Texas. Um, one of my very first jobs was working for Alan Wasser, who was the company manager of Sugar Babies. Um, just as an aside, I don't know if, if people who listen to this will know Susan, but Susan Sampliner was also working. She was a little bit more senior than I was, but she was working in the Schlissel Kingwell office at the time. As well, I worked for Susan at one point when she was in Charlotte Wilcox's office. Everybody's well, worked for Susan Sempliner at one point. Well, there you go. Uh, who, for those of you who don't know, who's in uh, the David Stone and the Wicked offices right now? Right. So uh, I worked on Whorehouse and I worked on on Sugar Babies. And as an aside, since I can say tits and ass, I probably can say that our team on the Broadway show Bowling League was named the Whore Babies. Uh, and by the way, we won, and I have a trophy to this day at home. And this is not what this podcast is about, but I will tell you that the Whore Babies were the very last team to bowl, and I was the very last bowler on the very last day, and I'm not a particularly good bowler, but somebody pointed out that if I bowled three consecutive strikes in the 10th frame, we would win by one pin, and I did. Wow. Did you retire? You're still, are you still bowling today? I, I am not bowling. Once, once you have bowled three consecutive uh, strikes in the last frame to win a championship and you have that trophy, that's when you retire. I believe they call that a turkey. Don't they call that a turkey? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's a little different in our business now. Yes, but yeah. it's, it's never happened before or since. So there you go. So uh, you amassed this great deal of experience on the other side of the table, if you will, from general managers and company managers as an associate producer, and you then decide to apply these skills to, again, as I refer to in the introduction, the other side of the table. What was the first introduction to being an agent? How did that Well, start? I didn't decide to do anything, um, actually, in my entire career, pretty much. What happened was I was, the last show that I company managed was A.R. Gurney's play, The Dining Room, at the Astor Place Theater before it became the home forever and ever of Blue Man Group. And it was going to close within the foreseeable future. What I wanted to do was take a show on the road as an assistant company manager. And I reached out to all of the general managers that I knew, particularly Peter Neufeld, who uh, was 
a great advocate for young people coming up, and there were just no shows. And so this is a true story. A lot of people have heard this story. It's kind of idiotic, but there you go. So I was working at Playwrights Horizons. They were the producer of the dining room. And this was before 42nd Street was was renovated. And so Playwrights was kind of, you know, sketchy, not compared to the other theaters on the block, but it, it still was. And there was no air conditioning. It was July. There was a historic heat wave. I think it was something like 106 degrees for three consecutive days. I had been offered an interview with Clifford Stevens, who had a company called STE Representation. And I had no interest in, in working for an agency. Uh, my experience of agents, especially when I was working for Jack and Jay, you know, I was always getting nasty calls, where's our money, you know, all of this. And it was horrible. It's the kind of call that I make to you now all the time. And I kind of disliked them as a, a breed of human being. But I have always believed that if you have the opportunity to meet somebody, you meet them. So it is the second or third day of this historic, massive, horrible heat wave. And people are dripping. It's just disgusting. And I walked into Clifford's office and it, it was like a refrigerator, it was so-called. And I thought, well, I have to work here. <laughs> and, and your agenting career was born because and I kind of begged for the job uh, in fact I remember it was a very cordial interview I was leaving the office and I turned around I walked back into the office and I said I really really want to work here and uh, he hired me and that was how I got into the agency business I mean I knew that my time at Playwrights Horizons was ending anyway I needed some job but but I wanted that one for you know just comfort so obviously over the years and in, in, in your path, you reversed your opinion of this other breed of people. No, never. <laughs> so what about it attracted you to it once you got into it and learned more about it? And what what do you like about it now? Even? Not a lot. Um, no, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I think that, that going back to my days at Sarah Lawrence and being part of the process, you know, in school of putting shows together from every different kind of angle, that's the thing that has always appealed to me. And those were the two qualities. Uh, I, I, over time, I realized that I brought to the job. One was, for lack of a better way of describing it, my, an ability to talk to artists. That was something that I enjoyed. And also a real interest in putting things together. I don't think of it as a selling job. Um, if I'm going to sell something, there probably are better things to sell and much more money to be made selling those other things than, you know, playwrights. So if you were writing a job description for an agent, one sentence, two sentence, what do you think that would be? What is the job of an agent today? Well... I don't know that I can do that because the job changes constantly. I mean, that's one of the appealing things about it. Every day we walk into the office, you don't really know what's going to happen. I don't see the job the way most of my colleagues do, I think. First of all, there is a, a big difference between talent agenting and what I do, representing everything but the actors. I'm not, sometimes I am, but mostly I'm not booking people into jobs that exist. Uh, mostly what I'm doing is trying to create the job in the first place. Can you give me an example of that? Like, what's an example of a artist that, or a team of artists, even, that you helped? Well, you mentioned Sideshow. That's the, the most ridiculous example that there ever will be, just because of the sheer number of, of people that I had on it. But uh, certainly another example is, is Waitress, Sarah Bareilles. I actually was uh, I approached Sarah and, and asked her, did she, uh, was she interested in writing a Broadway show? And uh, made the introduction to Barry Weisler, who is the producer of Waitress, uh, and the rest was history. Besides being able to speak to artists, what other skills do you think are necessary for agents to have today? 
is negotiating part of it. It's understanding the business, the part of it, the numbers. Well, sure. I think all of that's a part of it. And I think my, my general management background is, is very, very helpful because uh, it doesn't do anybody any good. If you advocate so strongly for your client that you lose sight of the needs of the project. Um, a deal that is brilliant on paper but is not part of a show that actually exists is meaningless. I think that, that you know, a certain degree of meticulousness is important in the job because there's a lot to keep track of. Um, I sometimes joke that, you know, one of the things, one of the prerequisites to being a good agent is you had to have been a really, really good assistant because in a lot of respects... That's the kind of work you're doing. You are still trying to anticipate and take care of other people's needs, always before your own. Let's talk about negotiating a little bit and cutting these deals. You've been cutting deals for a long time now. Do you think it's easier to get deals done today than it was yesterday? No, it's much harder. And why do you think that is? Well, because there's less money to go around. I mean, writers, let's just talk about writers, for instance... Playwrights and musical theater writers back in the day, there was no negotiating. They made 10% of the gross. That was it. And over time, that became more and more unwieldy until on Woman of the Year, Sam Cohn more or less invented what we now call the royalty pool. Uh, rather post Woman of the Year. Uh, Woman, Woman of the Year was, was, the tipping point, because it was a show that by all accounts was or should have been successful. The creative team meant made lots and lots and lots of money, and the investors lost everything. And so it was subsequent to that that they, they came up with the concept of the royalty pool, and that's been evolving ever since. So with shows costing more and more to produce, and profits being harder to come by, it's, it's more difficult to figure out how you're going to pay everybody. And, of course, there are a lot of people to pay. So I think the deals require more creativity than they ever did. And I also find that with every show, you have to look at the deals differently. There is no standard anymore. I mean, there are standards, but no, you know, they're just sort of a points of departure. Do you see a way for this to get any easier? John Breglio gave me the exact same answer. I asked him the exact same question, same answer, that it's become more complicated to figure out how to compensate everybody now than it was. And I'm hoping that someone out there listening or you has a solution on how we go back to a simpler way. Do you see that as a possibility or do you think it's just going to, we're just past that, it's going to be complicated now forever? Well, part of the problem is that Broadway is is a, a place where a kind of rarefied craft person is employed. And I don't mean just writers or directors. I mean seamstresses. These are the kinds of people who, if, if you renovated your home, you, you couldn't possibly afford them because everything is done by hand. So it's a very, very expensive art form. That's a problem. This is not a popular thing to say, but but when people talk about how expensive ticket prices are and they need to be lower, they need to be lower. In point of fact, they actually need to be higher. You know, the, the, the money that we get for tickets does not give us the same level of profit that much, much cheaper tickets once did when costs were low. Costs have increased much faster than ticket prices, in spite of the fact that it seems to the uninformed that ticket prices are just always shooting up. I don't know if, if it's ever going to be necessarily easier. For some reason, it's become the rule of thumb that, that a show should be able to recoup its capitalization in approximately a year. Well, to me, this always has seemed like a kind of crazy and arbitrary amount of time because other businesses don't recoup their, their costs in a year. Um, and, and it causes producers to make really, with apologies, stupid deals because they will... Uh, make amortization deals in order to be able to recoup, if all goes really well, within a year. And yet without that amortization deal, which is going to cost them much more money in the long run, they might have recouped their costs, not in a year, but in 15 months. And you see those deals all the time. And you want, and as an agent, you say, why are you doing that? Ultimately, it's not good for you. But because this has become 
a mantra. You know, we have to recoup within a year. Deal-making gets driven, not necessarily, at least as I look at it, by common sense. I think a lot of the problem that we face when we make these deals is we're trying to give every show an opportunity to pay back its investors, whereas I think if you just look at shows, the truth is that there are no sort of mid-level hits anymore. Shows either really succeed or they don't. And I'm not sure that the shows that really succeed need these cockamamie deals. And so we're making very, very complicated deals for sh to, to benefit shows that ultimately don't need them because they fail. Some of my easiest deal-making was for the Broadway production of Hamilton. I represent the costume designer, Paul Taswell. It was a very easy deal to make. And, and it's because, obviously, anything can happen, but everybody is assuming that this is going to be, at least at the outset, a very, very substantial hit. And the deal was made very easily. So that's, that's a little bit. I don't know that that really answers the question. You have obviously worked with a lot of producers, and what I love about you is you think like a producer, even when you're on the other side. That's one of the reasons I really wanted you to represent me. With all the producers you've worked with, what do you think are the characteristics that a producer producing today needs to have in order to be successful? In other words, tell me who your favorites are. No. Do you see how quickly he answered that with a no? Uh, well, describe those favorites for me. What I will tell you is that because relative to other businesses, it is rather inexpensive to get into the theater. If you have $12 million, now $12 million is a lot of money, but if I want to create a software company, that's not going to pay for a week, right? $12 million gets me to opening night and beyond on Broadway. Suddenly, if I have that money, I'm a producer. And that's the kind of producer that I don't like. I like to not really have to think about that part of things. I like producers who understand that the financing of something, if it's good, should go without saying, or even if it doesn't go without saying, is not the principal driving force. The people who I like most of all are the people who I think see it like me. It's, it's exciting to put something good together. And I think that, you know, you can look around the kinds of shows that get done and what you think of them and pretty much figure out who I like and who I don't. Well, I like everybody. Let's flip to the other people you have to negotiate with, which are your own clients. What do you do when you have to tell one of your clients that you don't think their work is very good? Does that ever happen? It's never happens. I'm sure it has. Or how do you deal with it? Because this is, a I find, fascinating about what you do. Because being an agent is very cutthroat, especially when you're dealing with people like Sarah Bareilles. They could jump to other agencies. There are people lurking around every corner trying to steal them, all these three-lettered agencies out there. What do you do when you have to tell your client that, hey, you need, we need to get this better, or maybe we should stop doing this, or maybe it's time for this to close? Well, first of all, my clients are never the ones to decide that something should close, so there's that. You know, in the creative process, Every artist always is striving to make something better. People also have a pretty good sense of when something represents their best work and when something doesn't. I think you could say that about yourself. I could say that about myself. So too can writers and designers and directors. There are also often extenuating factors. A show that's rushed into production, so there weren't time, there wasn't time to um, do that next set of rewrites, or there wasn't the budget for the costumes that the director envisioned, or there are many, many, many things. So it's not like you're not at home making a painting until the painting is perfect and then presenting it to the world. That painting that I've made, I think it's perfect. That's never true on a Broadway show. There's always something else that can happen. I mean, the one show, I will say, and this says a lot, I think, that, that where everybody involved pretty much got everything they wanted down to how it was advertised, how it was mar marketed, and how it was reviewed was Sideshow. Nobody, there, there weren't any, you know, what ifs. 
attached to that revival. And so... Three months later. What happened? Well, how many times did you go see it? Nobody went, is what happened. And do you have any idea in your own post-mortem about the show? Because I know yes. it's emotionally attached. You think about it like a business. Why didn't the revival of Sideshow work commercially? There are a number of reasons. The first and foremost, which I think is, is difficult for all of us who have been involved in Sideshow this time and the first time around to accept, is that people simply do not want to buy tickets to see a show about the Joint Twins. In spite of the fact that they were told by every critic in the country, including by Charles Isherwood, that it was one of the most wonderful things they would ever see. Charles Isherwood called it the essential ticket of the Broadway season. You cannot do better than that. People didn't want to go. And I suspect that the reason they didn't want to go, because, because sometimes people have said to me, yeah, but people see Curious Incident, they went to see The Elephant Man. None of those shows... An interesting side, sideshow doesn't either, but none of those shows are about sex. And yet I think the idea of a romantic story, which sideshow clearly is, that involves conjoined twins, creates subconscious nervousness in people that actually is, is not what they see when they see the show, but it keeps them from buying tickets. So I think the reason that people don't buy tickets is because it's all about icky stuff that they're imagining that's not really there. That's the first reason. The second reason, and this is not just about Sideshow, but I think it's about shows like Honeymoon in Vegas, um, a lot of musicals that don't open big. Maybe The Last Ship to a certain extent. If you look at the Broadway landscape this year, and you're a ticket buyer, and you're buying a pair of tickets to the things you want to see, well, what do you want to see? You want to see Bradley Cooper, you want to see Glenn Close, you want to see Hugh Jackman, you want to see Nathan Lane, I'm probably forgetting one or two, and you have to see them right away because they're all going to be here for 14 or 16 weeks, period, Larry David. So now I've talked this over with my partner, we bought tickets to all of these things, and we spent, you know, a few thousand dollars, and when we think about Sideshow or Honeymoon in Vegas or The Last Ship, or in point of fact... Finding Neverland or any of these other shows, the first thought we have, I'm pretty sure, is, oh, those are musicals. They'll be there. And also, as much as, you know, I adore Emily Padgett and Aaron Davey, they're not what's selling tickets. I just want to see Sideshow. I will see it, you know, when I have my next chunk of money. Well, too late. And I think that what, what by making it very easy for major stars to appear for a very limited time on Broadway, especially since just by how the calendar works, those things always tend to be concentrated in the fall. We've created an environment where a musical has to hit a home run out of the box or it's not going to work. The, the days of musicals catching on slowly are over. The, the, the last one that did uh, really was, was Gentleman's Guide, but there was no one waiting to go into that theater. We have an environment where there are a lot of shows waiting for theaters, so a theater owner has to do the responsible thing. If a show is not making it, they can't just give their venue away for nothing. A, a lot of things sort of happen with Gentleman's Guide that make it the exception that proves the rule. It, it, it's not just that it's a great show. Nobody was buying tickets, but it had very low running costs. It had the support of investors who were pumping money in, and it had a theater owner that didn't need the space. You needed all three of those things in order for it to get to the point where it could win the Tony. Would Gentleman's Guide have won the Tony had it closed? Who knows, but would it have mattered? It was closed. With Sideshow, we had, although for the size of the show, it was a very reasonable running cost, but it was still more expensive than that. There were shows that wanted the St. James, and it was a long time to get to the Tony Awards. So, there you go. Those two reasons are both fascinating. I think dead on. The first one, I actually just experienced on the visit, because however brilliant that piece of art was in that Lyceum Theater people decided for some reason, and there may have been a little bit of that icky factor that you described in 
uh, a love story between two older people that people didn't want to buy into. Never mind the story of a woman that who wants to go kill her first love. Right. Uh, well, we all want that. That is that is true. Uh, so that's fascinating. And number two, this idea of the limited run revival sucking the air out of the space. It doesn't suck the air. It sucks the dollars. Yeah. It I'm, sucks the dollars. I mean, you know, these shows, and God bless them, but they gross musical numbers. Who's buying those tickets? It's interesting. I used to have a rule that is no longer true, which was that people would buy tickets to unlimited number of musicals over the course of the year, but one play. One play. And... You know, I, I was lucky enough to have one once. It was Dancing at Lunasa. And you can look back. Proof. You know, you go back. There was always the one play. August. Osage County. And these plays would sort of, you know, everything else would sort of have its little runs or come and go. But there was this one play that was a must-see ticket. Well, now, when you put these big, big, big stars in these shows, it's almost reversed. Because people have to see those plays now if they want to see those stars. And the, the want-to-see aspect is becoming more and more true. I'm going to comment about a, a few shows, and I'm not going to give my opinion, but I'm going to give what I think is conventional wisdom. Finding Neverland. And I represent a number of people on that show, so we were all very happy. Finding Neverland, I think it is, it is safe to say it did not get good reviews. I think it is safe to say, and I am trying to not be critical and not subjective, but these are facts, safe to say that it was not embraced by the theater community. I think Sunday is evidence of that. It is safe to say, if you look at, you know, the various chat rooms, that it was the object of, let's call it commentary. People love it. Love it. And I will tell you that when I take my nieces and nephews to a show next Thanksgiving, and I always do every Thanksgiving, I take them to a show. It'll probably be Finding Neverland. People want to see Finding Neverland. It is exactly opposite of Sideshow. Motown, a show also that had a lot of, let's call it commentary, and was not embraced by the theater community, and did not get particularly good reviews. During previews, you could not get a ticket to the point that the free seats that are always reserved for the lighting designer, the scenic designer, all of the creative people who have to actually watch the show during previews as they're making changes, they didn't have seats. They gave them up to sell them. People were going crazy to buy tickets. There is this intangible aspect that as a producer, and certainly as agents, we ought pay attention to. Knock on wood, you never know, but I'm involved with a show right now that I think has that, which is School of Rock. Now, obviously, the hope is that it's good. The hope is that it is embraced by the theater community. The hope is that it wins fans among, you know, our snobby friends. But whatever happens, I can tell you just by the phone calls and the emails and the texts that I get from people who I haven't heard of for years, School of Rock is something people want to see. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how you find new writers or artists or people to represent if some of my listeners out there were looking to get an agent, I have a feeling a few are, how do they attract someone like you? Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, obviously it's not just me at Paradigm. There are a bunch of us, and we always are looking for new people. Bill Goldman wrote a book called Adventures in the Screen Trade, which which is his, his follow-up to the season. Both, both books are seminal and should be read by everybody who's interested in entertainment, even though both books are a little outdated, they still are in many ways profound. Um, I think it's the second chapter of Adventures in the Screen Trade where Bill Goldman discusses getting an agent. And he talks about the fact, and it really is true, that everybody who is involved with representing, producing anything in the arts wants to be the person who finds, you know, the thing that's great. And yet, People who are submitting material tend to only want to talk to Ken Davenport or Jack Tantliff or whatever. And Bill Goldman's point, which is very well taken, is talk to anybody. Because if your thing is really terrific, that person will go to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. Talent will out. A great piece of material will out. The people who constantly call, constantly write, constantly, you know, are rude to assistants, 
all of that only want to talk to me. What they don't realize is we actually remember those people and not for the reasons that they want to be remembered. So there's that. Um, I think that if we're talking to aspiring writers, it's really smart to figure, to learn a little bit about the agent that you're writing to. Like, who do I represent? I, in fact, we just got a letter and it was a letter. It wasn't, it wasn't email, which I really appreciate too. Just got a letter from somebody who actually said, I really admire your client list. I particularly like so-and-so's. I mean, they had done so much homework about me. It was so flattering. I'm like ready to represent them having not read a word. But of course we're going to reach out to that person. Uh, this sounds stupid, but it's really true. If you can't write a good letter, why should we think you can write a good play? And so uh, what's a good letter? Um, don't Please don't tell me that your play is easy to produce or that, you know, big stars will want to do it, or that, you know, it's going to make a million dollars. But a letter that is, is that, that catches my attention, and, and not me, you know, anybody out there, you'll get a response. Um, it's really good to call me Jack and not Jeff. Um, and what's really, really good is to not address the letter Jack Tantliff CAA. So, so, and you're laughing, but these things happen every single day. I mean, cutting and pasting does not work in looking for an agent or dating or anything like that. You need to be talking to the person that you are writing to. So there's that. How else do we find clients? Well, obviously, when people recommend, if you, Ken Davenport, call me and say, you should read this person, the first question I'll ask is, have you? And sometimes you'll say, well, no, but they're just a friend. Can you do it as a favor? In which case we will, and maybe it's good and maybe it's not. But what carries a lot more weight is is when you say, yes, I have, and I think they're terrific. So, again, it's always getting your stuff to people who can advocate for you, and it doesn't need to be on a high level. It just needs to be anybody. For playwrights, one of, uh, my advice always is write a brilliant one-act play because if you write uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night, it's just not going to get read for a long time because when I'm looking at the things I have to read, if I, you know, and you're, you're going to, we all know you're going to win, you know, the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award. But when I'm looking at these things and there's this 25 page thing and I'm tired and then there's this, you know, 230 page thing, I am going to read the one I play. I think the, the most general but important answer to the question is find ways to inject yourself into the community. Theater is not solitary. It's about people. And and it's also about people who happen to like each other and get along and spend a lot of time together. So if you're part of that and you have something worth paying attention to, people will pay attention. When they land an agent, when you sign one of these people, then what should they do? Is there Should they sit back? Oh, I got an agent. I got an agent. I can sit back now. Jack's going to do all the work for me. What's their no, role? No, they should then? never stop. And we, we coach them all the time, of course. But uh, first of all, you should never stop writing. The worst thing for any agent is the playwright with one play. one br And, you know, the agent probably thinks it's brilliant, too, except nobody wants to do it, and they never have, and they're not going to. You have to always be thinking about the next thing. Not only the next thing I'm going to write, but how can this thing that I've already written be used to bring me a step ahead? So, no, they're, they're not sitting back and letting me do all the work. Um, they're writing something new, they're meeting people, they're doing everything that they did to get me, but they keep doing it and you know, until something pops. Okay, last question, Jack, and then I'll let you get back to repping all these great clients of yours before they start calling yelling at me. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin, do you have any people in Aladdin? I represent the costume designer Greg Barnes and Paradigm represents uh Aladdin himself. Fantastic. So the genie in his fabulous costume knocks on your door and says, Jack, you've done such wonderful things for the industry and you've taken such a proactive role for your clients that you think about agenting like a producer. I want to grant you one wish. You mean other than putting I'm Getting the Band Back Together on Broadway? That's right. That's my show for those of you who don't know. See that? He's such a good agent pitching my stuff for me. Uh, I want you to imagine that this genie says, you've done such a great job. What is the Thing that drives you craziest about our industry? What keeps you up at night? What frustrates you? What makes you bang your hands on the table? 
With a snap of a fingers, Ojak, I will make this disappear. I will change this forever. All that you have to do is ask me, the genie. What would you ask the genie to change? Well, I'd like to get rid of stupidity. <laughs> that probably goes beyond this industry. By stupidity, I mean stupid producers in that why are they producing that? Stupid critics who don't know what they're talking about. But you know what, Ken? I don't have a lot of problems with the business. I mean, I think that it is... You said something at the beginning of this interview, which was nobody goes into it to make money. People really tend to be in theater, by and large, for the right reasons. There are bad eggs here and there. And I, you know, I I hated Charles Isherwood on first date, but how can I hate him after his review of Sideshow? You know, it's so like everybody's a human being. I do look around and I wonder why shows certain shows get produced. But, of course, if you dig deep, you always find out the answer. There's always an answer. I suppose if I could... Well, there is something. There is something. And, and it's, it's not going to be very popular because it would probably impact Aladdin. I think one of the ways that theater has, or Broadway, has been damaged, this is, this is part of the uh, big star limited engagement argument. It's an adjunct, but it's been going on for longer. What, uh, what some of your audience may not realize is that in its day, the longest running show on Broadway was Fiddler on the Roof, and it ran, I think, for seven and a half years. Before that, it was Hello, Dolly!, which ran just under. My facts may be completely wrong about which show beat which, but it wasn't more than eight years, either one. I think if they were to look up the length of the runs of shows like My Fair Lady, Guys and Dolls, Gypsy, pick one, they would be shocked. Three years was a huge hit. You know, Hairspray, which I represent, and was really, you know, uh, a victim of the economic crash in 2008. It was Hairspray closed in January of 2008 when the bottom was dropping out of the economy and the producers and the management looked into their crystal balls and they saw a summer coming where nobody would be in New York, nobody would buy tickets to see theater, and they closed preemptively to, to protect you know, a show that already profited quite handsomely, and as it turned out, they were wrong. Everybody was wrong. You know, the recovery, not the overall recovery, but the recovery in terms of Broadway theater and hotel occupancy and stuff like that was almost immediate, and it was it was a very good summer. And a show like Hairspray probably, although again, no crystal ball, would have done very well, probably did not need to close that. But anyway, Hairspray ran for five years, and it's disappointing. So, so in, in, in today, when we have obviously Phantom of the Opera, Mamma Mia, although it's closing, Book of Mormon, all these, I don't think that that's particularly healthy. I would, I am praying the School of Rock becomes one of those. But when your real estate is so much more limited than it ever was back in those days, everybody. And, and this is creatives, producers, theater owners, investors start to look not necessarily just to make something good, but what is that hit that can run for 10 or more years? I've tried to not name shows, and I don't know how... To, there's one example of, of sort of all of this happening in a way that I think was, I, I don't, I don't really want to say this because I don't like to speak ill. The show that I'm talking about is Rocky because to me, and I wasn't involved with Rocky other than we represented Andy Carl, who was Rocky, but I wasn't involved with any of the creative team. It always seemed to me looking at that show that that show was built to be one of these shows that, that to me, just again, as an observer on the outside, it seemed that almost everything about it was calculated to turn it into, for lack of a better word, an attraction, the way Phantom of the Opera is an attraction, or Book of Mormon now is an attraction. And that's the wrong way of thinking, and that's what this environment of shows that run 10 years, 15 years, and when that becomes your measure of success, I think it creates that. And so if I... 
am talking to the genie, even though I might have to say this may put you out of a job, that's how I would kind of like to turn the clock around. I would love if there was just more real estate and changing real estate all the time so that the people would feel comfortable taking risks, more risks. You know, the people would look at a show like Billy Elliot that ran for just three and a half years and say that's an important hit as opposed to something that was disappointing. That, that, that's what I would wish for. A very good answer, especially with the theater crunch that we're in today. I talk about this all the time. This season's a great example. We added four shows that I don't see going away anytime soon. Finding Neverland, American in Paris, Fun Home. These shows are just going to run. Well, Fun Home won't. I mean, Fun Home will run for a long time, but it's not going to be your 10 years. No, not 10 years, but certainly all these shows will run, it looks like, for a couple of years. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, And that's a lot of hits to get in one season, which, again... No, and and, and next season, I mean, Hamilton and Waitress and School of Rock probably are joining the list. So, so, I mean, Hamilton for for sure. And I can't really speak about Waitress other than the word on it is very, very good. And it's Sarah Bareilles and Jesse Mueller is is going to attract a certain audience because she won the Tony Award for Beautiful. School of Rock seems to have that built-in want to see. So then, you know, that's three more theaters that we're losing. 10 to 20 years from now, we could have nothing but long runners. (laughs) We'll all be out of work. Jack, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Some great guests that I can't even reveal coming up very soon. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast, everybody. Don't forget, if you're looking for space for your reading, your workshop, or your full production, check out DavenportTheater.com. That's DavenportTheater.com. I wanna be a producer. Look out Broadway. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.